Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. Uh, it's uh, obviously it's just such a great joy to worship with you this morning. It's a great thrill to see some Basil's vision come coming into reality, and uh, it's really lovely to see some faces I know, and uh, it's a really beautiful to see you guys, and also uh, many that uh, I don't and. Um, uh, so I hope what I have to say today will fit in with uh, the way your life is going at the moment and uh, bring something from the Lord. Um, so uh, we're in a series. We're looking at the book of Philippians. Dan and Jude have done some beautiful work in chapter 1. How many of you heard those? Excellent. Some of you, okay. So the, uh, chapter 1 has lots of encouragement in it. It also has some challenge has well-known verses like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you don't find that a challenge, then you probably need to check your pulse, I would suggest. Um, and uh, the series is called The Secret, and The Secret refers to something in chapter 4, uh, where Paul says, I know the secret about how to be content in every situation, whether things are good or bad. That is a good secret to have. That's a good thing to know. And, uh, and I'm going to kick into a little bit of chapter 2, and it unveils a little bit of the secret in that, um, particularly in the area of relationships, one with another. So here's the setup. St. Paul is writing from imprisonment. Uh, like 40% of all of Paul's letters, he's writing from imprisonment. That's quite some stat, I think. And um, the Philippians are also suffering. And the Philippians are also fighting with each other as uh, a congregation. There's, um, you see later in Philippians, uh, two female leaders who are good friends of Paul who are finding it hard to agree, Euodia and Syntyche. And uh, he pleads with them to have uh, a like mind in the Lord, the same mind in the Lord. And you're going to see that plea in a moment with the, with the whole of the congregation. And it's hard enough being a follower of Jesus Christ in the hostile culture of the Roman Empire, but it's also uh, a community composed of people from different social, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds uh, who will find all kinds of reasons and excuses for division. So uh, it's hard work being a church. And uh, as you look around, uh, relationships within the church are really key, are really important. And St. Paul wants to address that, both with individuals and also with the church as a whole. And so the beginning of chapter 2 is he makes this great appeal for unity, for togetherness. And he's saying, look guys, you need to get your act together at this point. So... If you're tracking with the passage, uh, I can see there's a few Bibles around or a few phones. Uh, I'll trust you're looking at Philippians 2, 1 to 11 on your phone. Uh, and uh, it, it's, uh, it goes like this. So uh, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, so they probably do, if you have any comfort from his love, I expect they have that as well, if any common sharing in the Spirit, yes, if any tenderness and compassion, he says, then make my joy complete. Essentially, guys, make me happy. Make me happy by being like-minded, having the same like-mind in the Lord, having the same love, being one in spirit or one in soul, one in mind. And then he says a little warning. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. 
So that's the kind of setup. That's the appeal that he wants to make. He says, I want you to come together in one mind. I want you to come together in one heart. I want you to come together one in action, if you like. So they've got to come to a common mind about life together in Christ. That doesn't mean having all having the same opinion, but it does mean having the same mindset, the same way of looking at things. And um, as a congregation, that is a vital thing, to have the same mind around Jesus, to have the same mind around the gospel, and what that might mean for you in your particular time and in your place. He says you've got to have mutual love. Love begins when someone else's needs are more important than yours. And he says, selfish ambition and vain conceit are what uh, you need to get rid of. And he suspects there's a certain amount of that amongst them. Uh, and i.e. those people who think too much of themselves and not enough of others. So there's this call to unity which he starts with. And, uh, it's, uh, and uh, it breaks into a call for humility which leads to unity. Now we find humility an attractive concept in people, an attractive virtue in people, don't we? If you think of a Christian you admire, just, just bring someone to mind, a, real, a, a Christian that you think, yeah, I would really like to be uh, more like them. You got someone in mind? Yeah, so probably humility, a certain humility is woven into their character. It's something that we really treasure, that we really value. But it wasn't always the case. So in the world that Paul is writing to, the Greco-Roman world at the time, humility was not seen as a virtue, but was seen as a weakness, something really to be avoided. So Aristotle, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher, says that honor and reputation were the most pleasant things that one could contemplate and attain for oneself. Or uh, when the general Pompey was sent off on one of his campaigns, which is sort of uh, around the same sort of time as Jesus, Uh, The philosopher Posidonius says to him, always fight bravely and be superior to others. That was seen as a virtue. That was seen as the right thing to do in in that world. Humility in Greek and Roman ethics was a degrading thing. Sure, you could be humble before people who were higher up than you. um, People like gods and people like the emperors. Because they would kill you if you didn't respect them. Uh, So there was a certain pragmatic aspect to that. But to put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or uh, that your standing in life didn't require you to be was in a way d- disgraceful and it was degrading. There was no virtue in that at all. So this call to humility that Paul makes to the people in Philippi is a, really a massive countercultural ask and we don't have that really so much these days. But then he's saying, look, this is, this is really important. This is this is reflecting the nature of Christ to one another. So how does he do it? Well, what he does is he breaks into poetry at this point. And sometimes only poems can say what really needs to be said. Some of you remembering you know, your initial courtship, remember using poems to great effect, I'm sure. Uh, poems have their way, don't they? they? They kind of make their mark in our lives in a, in a, in a really... Interesting way. And the, and the great thing about a poem is you just can't read it fast. You can't scroll a poem, can you? You can't skim read it. You have to let each word take its place in your heart. So Paul breaks into poetry and he wants to give us a mindset which comes directly 
from the nature of God and the nature of God as we see in Christ. So here's the mindset. He says, in, in your relationships, this is the next part, uh, if you're reading along. In your relationships with one another, so think about that for a second, looking around the room, in your relationships with one another, have the mindset, same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself lower and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this poem starts here and ends right down here. Now we're listening to that poem, and it's good. I've just said it briefly. Let me say it again with just a few extra notes to it. So, in our relationships, may our attitude be as that of Christ, who, being in very nature God, so the Greek word here is morphe, being in the form of God, the exact essence of God, the uh, very nature of God. So he's talking about Jesus being pre-existent from eternity to eternity, that he is God, the Son of God. But this Jesus, existing eternally, did not consider equality with God something to be laid hold of for his own advantage. He refused to use his status for his own ends. So that's something that's in the heart of God, that he refuses to use his status for his own ends. Rather, because God's essential quality is sacrificial love. You think about what God is like. Jesus represents that as sacrificial love. Rather, he made himself nothing. What the, what the Greek says here is he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He gave himself taking the very nature of a servant or a slave. So it's extraordinary, really. This, this pre-existent uh, son of God, when he enters our world, when he becomes one of us, when he enters our history, he doesn't enter as a lord. He enters as a slave, without advantages, without rights, without privileges. Being made in human likeness. So if he's made it from God to human via slave, and being found in appearance as a man, what does he do then? So he's come all this way. Then he humbles himself, so he goes even lower. So no one else humbled him, no one else humiliated him. He humbled himself. Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Oh, the wind is blowing through the barn. It's nice to be in a well-ventilated place. Yeah. It's good. Um, so this is the biggest contrast. The poem is saying you have God here and at the bottom you have the cross. And somehow Jesus made it from here to here. He's setting up the, the, the biggest contrast you can make. And if you think about the cross, it's just a, obviously a gruesome way to die. Cicero, the Roman orator... Uh, he said this, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him is an abomination, to slay him is almost an act of murder, to crucify him is what? 
There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And you may, uh, you, you know, we know the cross as a kind of symbol that we, that's well known all across the world as the symbol of Christianity. And you may wear a cross or, um, uh, you know, you know it really well. But the, it wasn't depicted in the, about the first three or four centuries of Christianity at all. They used to depict, you know, Jesus as the shepherd or an anchor or a bunch of other things, a dove and a fish. But they didn't use the cross because the cross was so unbelievably horrific that they couldn't bring themselves to do that. And they needed a bit of historical distance of three or four centuries before the cross appears in Christian art. And um, it, is, uh, it was really God's scandal. It was just so against anything they could possibly imagine. And so the poem is saying that Jesus starts here, the eternal God, and he ends up here on the cross. How does he go from the highest point to the very, very lowest? That's about the biggest trajectory that you could possibly imagine uh, in the history of the universe. How the heck did he get from here to there? Well, the clue is, the clue is in the verbs. If you read that poem, and uh, we're doing a bit of textual analysis here, Jesus is the subject of the verbs so far all the time. He's the, he's the agent. He's the one who has agency all the way through. So he decides not to stand on his rights and privileges as God. He empties himself. He takes the very nature of a servant. He humbles himself. He is obedient to death. That's all Jesus. It's all him. He does it all. He makes the journey uh, with full intention. He humbles himself on purpose. So it's quite clear that Jesus knew who he was all the way through this poem. He knows who he is. He knows that he is God himself. He knew what he was doing. And he chooses to leverage his divine strength for the benefit of others and for the benefit of you and me. That's what he does. And so, you know, the old thing is, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, I'm giving you uh, this poem to help you look at what Jesus is like. And when you look at what Jesus is like, you can see what God is like. That he intentionally moves from here to here. The biggest possible downward mobility that you could ever imagine. Jesus' equality with God actually found its most authentic expression when he emptied himself rather than furthering his own ends. In emptying himself, Jesus did not stop being God. He was showing us what it really meant to be God. It's a, it's a startling revelation. If you think of the culture at the time when you're meant to go around being superior to other people, this is really startling, saying, look, actually God, who made everything, this is what he's like. So this whole culture is out of step with actual reality. Far from being degraded and humiliated by others, as the Greeks and Romans would have thought, the gospel showed that Jesus chose to make his way to the cross, set his face like flint. He wasn't humiliated, but in extraordinary love, he said things on the cross like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is someone who is intentionally there. He knows what he's up to. He knows who he is. He knows what he's doing in bringing salvation to mankind. And when he's done it, he says, it's finished, it's done, it's accomplished. Those are his words on the cross. 
And uh, even in the moment of extreme pain, he's expressing the heart of God towards um, those who will hear. So we're asked to have the same mindset. That's something of a tall order, don't you think? The thing about following Jesus is always that he asks you to do things that are impossible. And the reason, ah, oh, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's fine, really. I'm just wondering whether, you know, when I say a, say a good point, then the Holy Spirit blows through. It's just a thing. Anyway, yeah, it's a sign. Um, no, uh, we're asked to have the same mindset. And so God always asks us to do impossible things. And the reason why he asks us to do impossible things is because, well, he's God, and also because he gives us his Holy Spirit to do the impossible. So Hudson Taylor, one of the great uh, missionaries in China in, the, in previous centuries, he, uh, he said, uh, I think it was him, he said, um, he said, there are three stages of doing something with God. Firstly, it's impossible. Secondly, it's difficult. Thirdly, it's done. And that's because... You, you, you know, you move from thinking you can't do it to saying, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me. If you've never prayed before, that's a great prayer to start with. And then you find that God does help you and he gives you supernatural power to do the things that uh, you couldn't do on your own. But we're asked to have this same mindset, to humble ourselves in our relationships with others. And we're to do that, though, from a place of secure identity and purpose so that we know who we are, we know what we're doing, and in that, in that place, we then humble ourselves with great effectiveness. just want to move into a slight digression. I, just, uh, I think there is a peculiar habit, particularly maybe amongst British Christians, but that may be uh, elsewhere as well, to say this kind of prayer, to say more of Jesus, less of me. Or in the words of John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I get where that's coming from. I get that that's a good intention. And it sounds spiritual and it sounds Christian. But I do think it's not the case. So uh, there's a quote which is attributed to C.S. Lewis, although I don't think he did say it. Uh, it goes like this. It's a, and it goes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You may have heard that, may not. But humility is not thinking of less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, and by consequence, thinking of other people more. So I think saying more of Jesus, less of me, and that's a prayer I've said in the past as well, but I think it's a kind of false humility, and it causes people not to offer the strengths and gifts that God has given them for the benefit of others. So you can see in the life of John the Baptist when he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Actually, John the Baptist knows who he is and he knows what he's doing and he's fully secure in his, in his, in his identity. He says, I baptize the water, I baptize for repentance, but there's one coming after me who's mightier than I will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. So he knows what he's doing, but he knows that Jesus is coming to do a different job and a greater job than him. And that's okay. So he's literally the best man to the groom. That's how he defines himself. That's his role. And he, and he does his role from strength, but he humbles himself before Jesus. And Jesus also uh, was the... You can see this in the life of Jesus too, where uh, it says in John's Gospel that Jesus knew that the Father put all things in his power, so he understands his authority. And he knew that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he knows where, where he comes from and where he's going. And in that moment, you think... 
with that sense of full authority and full identity and knowing who, where you come from, knowing where you're going, what are you going to do next? You think you might zap a demon or something. Do something dramatic. Raise someone from the dead. But it says here, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet. So in the moment of greatest authority brings about a moment of huge humility. So I would just suggest at the end of this digression, instead of praying more of Jesus, less of me, I would just say more of Jesus in all of me. Because God values who you are. He doesn't want less of you. He wants all of you. And uh, it's good not to step back like that, but to bring what God has placed in you and to honor that and to bring it for the benefit of others uh, in the community and elsewhere. Okay, now the last bit. How are we doing? Oh, we've got to finish soon, haven't we? Okay. <laughs> I loved your uh, notice about toffee apples, by the way. That was good. That's really nice. Um, so, last bit. Uh, Christ has been the subject uh, of, of moving downwards from God to the cross. And now God is the subject where he says he exalts Jesus and he gives him the highest name. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest name and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This isn't like a reward for Jesus for being good from going from here to here, but it's literally God's big yes at saying, yes, Jesus, you have shown what God is like. You have shown what he is like. In Jesus and his downward mobility, the true nature of God is revealed. He's most truly known in the one who, through sacrificial love, has poured himself out, taken the lowest place, and gone to a gruesome execution. That's God's own nature. It's God the Father saying, yes, that's what we're like. That's what God is like. Jesus Christ is Lord. So, in your relationships, have this mindset, he says humble ourselves and use our strength to benefit others. So today is really important that you know your identity in Christ, that you know that you're beloved, that you are uh, a son or a daughter of God, that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that you are given gifts of the Spirit, that everyone has a part to play in a church community, everyone has a part to play in extending the kingdom of God wherever you are. That's you. And I really encourage you not to defer to others and say, look, there's some more spiritual, more powerful people than me. I'll let them do this stuff. Everyone gets to play. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone is called by Jesus. So step forward rather than step back is my encouragement. And that's weird in a sermon about humility, but humility is about stepping forward, bringing what you have, but you do it in the service of others rather than grasping something for yourself. That's how it works. Okay, let's stand. I'm going to see uh, some empowerment from the Holy Spirit.